2: Hello and welcome to episode 159 of the Observer's Notebook Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena, and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it going. If you enjoy what you hear, please please donate via Patreon. You can start by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous for $5, receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash observersnotebook. And if you'd like to join the oppo, membership is only $22 a year. For more information, find us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org And we're also on Facebook Just search for ALPO Astronomy And yes, this podcast also has a Facebook page as well Just search for Observer's Notebook And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast Please subscribe, that way you'll never miss any episodes And now, episode 159 with Carl Hergenrother The Executive Director of the ALPO Enjoy! Enjoy! All right. I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast. And with us today, we have the Executive Director of the ALPO, uh, Carl Hergenrother. Welcome back to the podcast, Carl. Thanks for having me, Tim. Now today we're gonna we're gonna delve into the time machine a little bit. Um, let's talk about um, not only the ALPO but astronomy. Where you saw where it was like we're seventy five years old as an organization. So where do you think astronomy was seventy five years ago?
1: So, yeah, the, the Alpo was founded in 1947 and, you know, it was primarily founded to promote the observation of the solar system, the moon, the planets, not so much meteors, not so much comets yet, mm-hmm. but kind of the, you know, the the resolved bodies of the solar system that you can see. And 1947 is kind of an interesting point in time, um, not only historically, but scientifically. I mean, we we're only two years removed from the end of World War II. Mm. Really, that's two years removed from, you know, almost a 20-year period of, you know, economic uncertainty and political conflict with World War II and the Great Depression. But also astronomy was kind of in a strange place in 1947, especially planetary astronomy. If you go really, really far back, you know, you're talking, you know, the Renaissance and even, you know, Mm -hmm. the 15th, 16th, 17th century, it was planetary astronomy that was at the forefront of astronomy. You know, people were discovering comets and, you know, Halley was figuring out their orbits and linking comets up. Oh, comets can return. 1800 saw people figure out meteor showers were you know, uh, they weren't a meteorological phenomenon. They were an astronomical phenomenon and they were related to comets as well. But then something happened kind of in the, the middle of the 1800s. You first of all had the advent of photography. Mm-hmm. You had the advent of spectroscopy. And then as you entered the 20th century, the early 1900s, you started to see the first, at that time, large telescopes, like Mount Wilson had the 60-inch, the 100-inch. And all of a sudden, these faint fuzzies that people like Messier and Herschel cataloged all those years ago that no one really thought much of other than, well, they're not comets, they're not moving, <laughs> but they're fuzzy, all of a sudden with spectroscopy and photography and the large telescopes, you started to realize that these faint fuzzies were something interesting. They were galaxies, they were planetary nebula, they were star clusters. And so astronomy kind of moved away from being very planetary focused and more of closer to what we have now in the modern times, more of a cosmology type study. True. And also planetary wasn't helped by, you can kind of say, the uh, Mars Canal crisis. (laughs) Crisis. (laughs) Correct. where you know with chaparelli and with lowell pushing the whole idea that there were canals on mars which is something that people were seeing visually Mm -hmm. and that these canals were to you know they were artificial creations of a dying advanced civilization on a drying out planet and of course after many many years it was realized that no that's not what's going on on mars and so in 1947, people looked at the Mars and the moon as not places where there were butterflies and advanced civilizations and all this stuff, but just dead worlds. And I think that really kind of hurt planetary. And so for the professional community, planetary was almost a neglected field.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I'm in the middle of a series of uh, podcasts right now where I'm talking about historic observatories. And a lot of them I'm talking who are really old. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I have a meeting on Friday with the Vatican Observatory. Oh, nice. And, and mm-hmm. that's been around forever. So it's just like it's it's really, really interesting to, to talk to them about their history and where they started with their observing programs as well.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And you go back early enough and they were all observing comets. Mm-hmm. They're all you know involved in doing uh star catalogs. I wanna say the Vatican Observatory is one of the places where they've we're using spectroscopy for the first time on stars themselves to actually understand what stars were made of. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that only 150 years or so ago, we didn't actually know that stars were hydrogen and helium and a smattering of other things. Mm. We just knew that they were up there and they were hot.
2: Yeah. And the evolution of this hobby and this field of study has really been amazing. Even just, you know, since I've been into it,
1: Yeah. So one of the things I've been doing recently, kind of as, you know, in response to the 75th anniversary is uh, in our journal, which comes out quarterly. Mm -hmm. I've been writing kind of look back pieces where I say, okay, what was in published in the journal 75 years ago, 50 years ago, 25 years ago? And it's interesting that if you go back 75 years, 1947, I mean, the journal was the main product of the Alpo at the time. You know, this is definitely a pre-email, pre-internet time, 1947. So all the communications were through the mail. <clears throat> and so Walter Haas, our founder who created the Alpo in 1947, created what was then the Strolling Astronomer. Mm-hmm. Um, we still call it the Strolling Astronomer, but we also refer to it now as the Journal of the Alpo. And it was, you know, maybe a dozen, dozen and a half pages. And it's kind of interesting, the things that he was kind of pushing folks towards observing or the questions that they were trying to answer. Uh, for one, like, did the moon have an atmosphere or not? Mm-hmm. This was still something that wasn't completely settled at the time. Um, people were like, as they s- are today, seeing what we call lunar transient phenomenon, or right. You know, you might see a flash on the moon, um, for a long time, you know, People were thinking, well, this is just observers, not necessarily imagining things, but you you see things, especially when you're you're pushing the edge of perception, kind of Mm -hmm. when you're looking through a telescope. We now know that, well, you you do you can detect impacts on the moon as, you know, meteoroids or small asteroids hit the moon. But one of the it was kind of interesting. One of the things that Walter was uh, pushing folks towards observing back in 1947, 1948 was looking for meteors on the moon. Hmm. That if the moon had an atmosphere, the best way to detect that atmosphere would be to look for meteors burning up in that atmosphere. So during like the Perseids and the Geminids, actually actually was probably I think it was mainly the Perseids at the time. It was actually asking observers to look for the possibility of seeing meteors. And of course, there were some quote unquote meteor detections, which right. probably weren't. Um, as we know now, sometimes it's just birds, distant birds flying across the moon. Sometimes it's stuff in your eyeballs, you know, as we get older. Yes. You know, now when I look up at the blue sky, it's like, oh, boy, look at all that stuff now. But yeah, it's amazing just how much, you know, and of course, 1947, um, we didn't have spacecraft yet. That was, you know, people knew that was coming, especially after the war and all the the R&D that happened in those war years. But it would be kind of amazing to think, you know, in 1947, what would they have predicted for 2022, 2023? And would their predictions have been maybe they wouldn't have predicted enough? Or would they have kind of predicted stuff that still is 75 or 200 years out in the future?
2: Very true. Yeah, I'm still waiting for my hoverboard from 1980s.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, back to the future. Yep. <laughs> they keep saying, but they're not really hoverboards. No, no, no. <laughs> My kid's always like, we want hoverboards. It's like, no, that's not really hoverboards. (laughs) So, you know, looking at uh, planetary astronomy today, um, you know, of course, the thing to remember with the the ALPO and other groups is, you know, we do this because it's fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, there's always, you know, there is that excitement that what you're doing is furthering science. That, you know, when you're looking, you know, through the eyepiece at a dust storm on Mars or a brand new comet or something like that, you might be the only person looking at it at that time. Or you may be one of 200 people, but you Mm -hmm. may be the only person writing down what you saw at that particular time. And so those observations will definitely help um, in the future. But when you start predicting what the state of the field will be in 75 years, this is just going to be a fun exercise because okay. you can't, I mean, imagine going back to 2019 and predicting 2023 right? without having no idea about COVID or oh. know, the war in Ukraine or high inflation, or all this stuff that no one would have predicted. Right. But we definitely can, you know, make some, you know, try our hand at predicting a little bit of what's going on. Okay. And sometimes that's just kind of extrapolating trends. But we'll try to have fun with this, especially towards the end, where we try to make some kind of crazy predictions, which may or may not be out of the realm of possibility. Okay, sounds good. So I don't know if you want to go first with a uh, maybe what your favorite prediction is. It doesn't have to be necessarily 75 years out, but just in the future.
2: Well, I, I, you know, I I did a podcast with Scott Roberts a few years back and I asked him, where do you think amateur astronomy is going? He goes, no more eyepieces. Everything you put into your Mm -hmm. telescope will be a camera. I can believe that, and we're there now. Yes, you know we have these robotic telescopes, these little fifty millimeter lenses that are taking photographs of deep sky objects that are relatively easy, affordable.
1: You know, yes, and and it's it's funny because so many people kind of, I mean, some of uh, more the old school observers, myself included, kind of poo poo them a little bit. Me too. But that may very well be the wave of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just set it up on the backyard on the table. You don't have to have a permanent observatory. Nope. You set it up. You say you sync yourself. You figure out where you're pointing, and I want observations of X object. and it does it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and you do it with your cell phone. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, so look, looking ahead, you know, it's it's. I don't know. I'd like to. That's tough because you know I, I'm I'm old school. I'm still the IP's guy, but uh yeah, w- where this hobby will go, I think a lot of it has to do with imaging.
1: Oh, definitely, and it'll be yeah. streaming too. Yeah, I mean, I can see where most people just kind of stream what they're imaging. Here's live pictures of you know tonight, at least over here in the Western U.S. and a good chunk of Central and South America. We've got the occultation Mars, the Moon occultating Mars. Mm-hmm just everyone streaming it live right like, i could definitely see that happening
2: yeah and you know as and if you go back you know just go back 25 30 years ago the whole dobsonian craze oh yeah of telescopes too no one saw no one saw that you know it, it was just it was crazy john dobson revolutionized amateur astronomy building these you know large aperture reflectors that were easy to operate
1: Oh, yeah. Just look at the, uh, you know, again, going back to the old Alpo Journal, mm-hmm. of, you know, 75 years ago or whatever, you almost never see a telescope larger than about six or eight inches. Right. Because back then everyone was making their own telescopes. Right. So they were mostly reflectors, maybe some very small refractors, mm-hmm. but it was just stuff you could make yourself Usually, very long focal length. So there was kind of a limit to how big your telescope could be and now i mean how many people actually make their own optics i mean i know mm-hmm. people out there to do it but the average person myself included average observer just buys stuff and for i mean it's not that expensive to get your hand on a large 12 inch or 16 inch no. top sony that can track for you and it's go-to right it's amazing
2: yeah i you know i I'm sitting there busting my brain trying to come up with what I predict for the future. And it, it's it's difficult to to do that for me. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I, I kind of made a short list of the uh, the positives and the negatives going forward. Okay. And I'll probably start off with the negatives just because that way we end on a positive note. <laughs> I like that. But I mean, observing is becoming more and more difficult and um, being planetary, mostly planetary focused, looking at the planets, a lot of the problems that I'm going to bring up don't really affect observing, say, Jupiter or Saturn because they're bright. They cut through the muck. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the best images you'll ever see or best observing you'll ever see a planet is done at sea level through 95 percent humidity. You know, completely gunky skies like Florida or the Philippines where Christian Go Christopher Go is and stuff like that. That Damian Peach in Barbados. Yeah, he goes to the Barbados and, <laughs> and observes, you know. I've and,
2: been to Barbados. <laughs> it's humid in Barbados.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a comet person. We need clear skies. I go to mountaintops and blah blah right. blah. But but for a lot of planetary observing, you don't need that. But I mean, the biggest problem with astronomy, amateur astronomy in general, or backyard observing, is just light pollution. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the fact that, you know, cities are getting brighter because they're getting larger and there's more lights. But I mean, even your neighbors, everyone's got security lights on that are on all hours of the night. I mean, just my house here, I live kind of on the outskirts of Tucson. And when I first moved here 10 years ago, it was great. My backyard was nice and dark. Now I got three neighbors with lights shining directly into my backyard. Yep. And so that's just getting worse and worse with time as light pollution gets worse. Um, we've also got light pollution from satellites in low Earth orbit. Uh. I used to do a lot of meteor observing, especially 10, 20 years ago. And then I kind of stopped for a couple of years. And then last year, I observed my first meteor shower in probably about three, four years. Oh, yeah. And I was shocked by how many satellites there were to the oh. point where it was distracting. You know, you're looking for moving objects, meteors, but at the same time, there's like three or four constant satellites moving. It actually was a distraction.
2: And then you get the chain of Starlink satellites going overhead
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, they're talking about launching tens of thousands and then there's tens of thousands of the the Amazon one. Right. Kuiper, ironically named after one of the, you know, (laughs) the few people in the professional astronomical community in 1947 who were was doing planetary science, Gerard Kuiper. (laughs) But yeah, they got the Kuiper satellites are going to go up in one web and then the Chinese have their own stuff and the Russians will have their own stuff. And then they all start colliding, and it's just... Uh, Don't even. Is it going to look like Coruscant, if you know your Star Wars? Where it's just, you know, (laughs) constant, you know, lanes of things moving across around the planet, and you just won't even see the stars anymore. The nice thing is, for planetary observers, that's really not going to be that big of an issue. Yeah. Because you're looking at a, you know, relatively speaking, even the moon is small in the sky, let alone Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, Mars... And so, yeah, every once in a while, a satellite might go through the field of view. But when you're taking, you know, 10 millisecond exposures at 200 frames per second, Mm -hmm. it's okay to throw out a few. Another issue that's really been coming up is just climate change in general. Um, I mean, especially here in the western U.S., I remember when Neowise, Comet Neowise, was big and bright that July. That was the year the monsoon just kind of didn't show up Uh in Arizona. And there were fires everywhere. I mean, the mountains just to the north of me were on fire. Um, all of California was on yep,
2: fire. Yeah, we had a lot of fires that year.
1: And there was entire weeks where I couldn't observe, not because it was cloudy, but because it was smoky. Sure. And that's becoming more and more of a problem, let alone you know, the fact that there's more cirrus out there, especially with the increased air travel producing a lot more cirrus. Mm. So there's not as many clear nights as there used to be. And then there's... One thing I'm going to talk about here, which is part problem, part I guess negative and part positive, and that's big science. I mean, one I mean we we do a lot of this stuff because we find it interesting and fun, right But we also want to contribute to science, and that gets a little harder when the professional surveys are doing so much work, mm-hmm. like, for example, you know, just this past year, Don Makel's passed away, right. And Don is one of a very handful of one of handful of the few surviving visual comet hunters that were around who discovered, you know, say a dozen comets or so. And discovering comets visually is I'm not going to say it's completely gone, but the days where you could discover three, four, five visual comets a year are gone. Now it's maybe one opportunity per decade where a visual comet might still be discoverable if someone was willing to, you know devote the time for it
2: yeah i don't think david levy's actively looking anymore either i think uh, i
1: don't know yeah yeah and i mean it's and, and it was it, it
2: was those two basically in the united states that discovered yes. them all
1: <laughs> you know yeah yeah so you know, you've got you know for a long time it was amateurs who were discovering supernova right you don't have to go very far back where you had like robert evans right. um discovering supernova visually through a 12 inch or 16 inch you know telescope And now supernova, like a dime a dozen, they discover dozens of them a night down to Mm -hmm. 20th, 22nd magnitude. Um, Even asteroid discovery, um, while not something you did visually, but with CCDs in the 90s, I mean, geez, that was back at a time where you could still discover 14th magnitude asteroids, brand new asteroids. And now all the asteroid discoveries are about 20th magnitude or fainter and being done by the professional surveys. And with other surveys coming online, like Atlas completely covering the sky, or Vera Rubin, Mm -hmm. which will be covering the sky, I think, every couple of days, it'll cover the entire sky down to about 24th magnitude. Uh, NEO Surveyor, which is NASA's next big asteroid discovery telescope, which will be launched probably later half of this this decade, which will, Mm -hmm. basically, it's an infrared telescope, it'll discover most of the asteroids and comets out there. And all these surveys constantly covering the sky, it does make you wonder, you know, is there a place for scientific contribution by the amateur? And as depressing as that may sound, it's not all negatives. There's some big positives in there. For one thing, I mean, when Vera Rubin's got its gigantic multimeter aperture, discovering stuff at 23rd, 24th magnitude, that also means it's not seeing anything brighter than about 16th, 17th magnitude, because those are saturated. So if you're talking brighter variable stars or brighter comets or asteroids, you still need smaller telescopes to do that. But the other great thing about these big science projects is that they're producing a lot of data. And a lot of that data does end up becoming publicly available. So, you can go through that data. You can pick your favorite asteroid. You can pick your favorite comet, favorite variable star, find new ones that people are missing. There's one amateur um, in particular, Sam Dean. He's a real young guy, and he's kind of cornered the market recently on whenever a new asteroid or comet is discovered. He will go back through the publicly available data from PanSTARS, from ATLAS, from the various surveys going back, you know, 20, 30 years. It's all online and he'll extend out their orbits by 10 years or so. Yeah. And that's the difference between here's an object that's borderline lost and here's an object with a perfect orbit. And now you can actually do orbital integrations and you can you know, observe it for the next five years. And those are the kind of things that you can do when you have access to these uh, data archives.
2: And a lot of it is that through the citizen science.
1: Right. Projects. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Hmm. And as bad as light pollution is for, you know, most of us live near cities. That's because that's where the work is. Um, Light pollution is getting worse. So yes, it's a little harder to do observing from your backyard. But I mean, now with, groups like eye telescopes and before that, Sierra stars and light buckets. and those groups, sky gems observatory. I mean, you can just log in and observe with a telescope located in Australia or Namibia or Spain. Yeah.
2: yeah I, I'm a subscriber for the SLU telescope. Right. Right. So that's can,
1: uh, the Canary Islands. I think.
2: That's Canary. So yeah, I can, I can yeah. log on any night and look at anything I want basically with that telescope and I'll do whatever images I want. It's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. It's amazing that, you know, and here you have access rather than, you know, spends what could be a hefty sum of money to have your own 20 inch telescope, with a, you know, 4k CCD in your backyard. Right. You can just pay for time on one of these telescopes located yeah. at a much better site than most of our backyards. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think I pay a
2: hundred bucks a year for that thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I don't use it enough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and those, you know, telescopes that are being, uh, you know, becoming remotely available are becoming larger and larger. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, the largest ones are about, you know, 0.5, 0.6 meters. You're talking 20, 24 inch. But there are one meters out there. Right. And I know there are like, you know, in Great Britain, they have a two meter telescope, the Fox telescope that a lot of the amateur groups have access to. And I can easily see a time where, you know, I telescopes or some equivalent group might start selling time on a one or two meter telescope. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, since we're talking about where will planetary astronomy be in 75 years, I would be willing to take the bet that in 75 years, there will be a publicly accessible space telescope for oh. amateurs to use.
2: Oh, that's I, I see that as well. I would not be yeah. surprised. I mean, I, what was it? I think the uh, Planetary Society thought about doing that years ago. I think it was.
1: They talk, they yeah, got... you see proposals every <laughs> once in a yeah. while. But I can definitely, I mean, right now, I mean, so many small universities, not even small, uni- I mean, small and large universities are launching their own CubeSats, mm-hmm. or the, you yeah. know, small sats and CubeSats. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility for someone to invest. It doesn't even have to be a million dollars. It could be less than that. Just to throw a six or eight inch telescope into orbit. Mm-hmm. Imagine just having an eight inch telescope without just to look at Jupiter. Above without the atmosphere. Having the, yeah. Without the atmosphere to worry about. Yeah. I mean, that would be great. It would be. Let's do it. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> let's take that. Uh, let's take that grant money we have from the ALPO. And... <laughs> I mean, that's the funny thing is that you know, right now the the AL you know the ALPO doesn't have its own dedicated telescopes. Other organizations do, like the Double has its own dedicated telescopes. Good point. But I mean, is it possible that in seventy five years we might be talking about ALPO Sat one? SAT I'll post that too, you know. Or
2: just Earth-based remote observatory that the members can log on to and use.
1: Or just that as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
2: Definitely. And that's that's a
1: good idea. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And yep yeah, go ahead. No, go on. Go on. Oh, and, and of course, you know, observing remotely is one thing, but at the way rate things are going, I mean, right now, you know, a lot of our members observe the moon. They observe Mars and the other planets. But in 75 years, will their great grandkids be walking on the moon and Mars, vacationing Mm -hmm. on the moon and Mars? I can see in maybe not 75 years, but definitely the next 100, 200 years, Mars will be the Las Vegas of the future. That's my prediction. Okay. That'll be where everyone goes to get married or to <laughs> go, you know, because it'll be a great location. That's a destination wedding. <laughs> yep. I mean, everyone will be bringing home moon rocks. They probably wouldn't be allowed to. There'll be laws against right. it, but just like right. national parks, they'll smuggle uh-huh. home and everyone's like, I got this rock from the moon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's true. That'll be, uh, that would be an interesting time to live in.
1: I mean, we're wow. getting to a point now where, uh, you know, we have a meteorites section
0: mm-hmm.
1: and people are, you know, categorizing meteorites. But we've had at least, I think it's what, five asteroids have been seen now inbound before they hit the atmosphere. And that's just going to increase. Plus, a lot of people have fireball cameras. I, in fact, have a fireball camera that I'm hosting for a few, uh, actually for the Vatican Observatory at my house here. Oh, my. And and it could get to a point where there will be so many cameras looking up at the sky that every meteorite dropping event will be cataloged. And you'll be able to go out and pick up the rock, you know, within days of it falling. I know there's people, I'll just kind of, Tim Swindle, who's the former department head of the Lunar Planetary Lab University of Arizona, has a dream that I really understand and agree with of, you know, will the day come where you can predict a fall and then go out there where your catcher's mitt <laughs> And catch it.
2: I don't know if I'd want to be there for that. <laughs>
1: Depends how big it is, right? Yeah.
2: Wow, that's an interesting concept there. Hmm. Now, what about optics? Where do you where do you think the future of optics are going? So for optics, um,
1: I really don't know what's going to happen in seventy five years. I'm not an optician, but I know just the short term trends. One thing I have noticed on the professional side, and I can see this maybe starting to come over on the amateur side, is if you want to really detect low surface brightness features, now we're not talking planets, we're, we're talking, you know, comet tails and tails and stuff like that on the sky. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is more applicable to looking at galaxies and dust in the Milky Way and stuff like this. One way to do that is to have a whole bunch of small telescopes each with its own camera. And then you co-add all those, what they call fisheye telescopes. In fact, there's a group, um, I wanna say, they're based in North Carolina, uh, one of the universities there. They have the, uh, they have a fisheye lens telescope. I, I wanna say it's called Firefly. And they're able to detect, they've got a bunch of, I think it's relatively small, it's just Canon 400 millimeter lenses, I believe. Hmm. And they've got like 20 or 30 of them on a the mount each with their own CCD. And they're taking pictures and they're detecting low surface brightness galaxies that you just can't see. Even with the old Palomar Sky Survey, even with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, you just can't see that stuff. You can't get the uh, contrast to actually pick these out from the background. But they're able to do it with really, really small aperture uh, equipment, just lots of them. And so the key is you have a lot of images with a different, uh, basically you're beating down the noise in the background by taking a whole bunch of images with relatively small wide field equipment and then you co-add it all. And I can see that work, especially on the comet side. Um, I'm seeing a lot of like the best pictures I'm seeing recently for comet observations are being made with the Celestron Raza Schmidt cameras. Oh, yeah. There's eight inch, 11 inch and 14 inch versions. And they're really fast, they're like F2. Um, Of course, like any super fast optics, it's you you have to be almost borderline insane to want to work with optics that fast because there's a lot of finagling and getting the tilt right and the spacing right and everything like that. But if you're willing to master that, I mean, the images that are being taken that are showing dust trails on almost every short period comet, basically the meteors that are being produced by these comets. Right. And I I mean I can see a setup where people just have a whole bunch of these. <laughs> and you all of a sudden, rather than have a picture of a comet which is traditionally taken with, say, a 10-inch or 20-inch telescope and a small field of view, and going, okay, I can see a coma that's you know quarter degree across, and here's a little tail that goes off the field. You'll see every short period comet might have a dust trail that goes by 10 degrees. And I can see that kind of being a future for uh you know just getting science out of your data and again that's kind of using optics in a different way
2: yeah now what about adaptive optics for amateurs Do you think there's a possibility of that
1: definitely definitely um i mean adaptive optics i, I know there's there's always been these little uh tip tilt mirrors mm-hmm. but i think the only tip tilt in one maybe two axes um, for the professional telescopes of course they especially the telescopes around here tucson they've got pretty good adopt adaptive optics. Um, right. The thing that's difficult there is that usually you have to have some stellar source that you can kind of map and in a lot of cases, they produce their own stellar source. They actually shoot a laser beam that ionizes the sodium layer. that's about, you know, up in the, the stratosphere there. And so they produce their own kind of synthetic 12th, 13th magnitude star. Uh, That then they use as their guide. That's probably something the average person can't do. But who knows? In 75 years, we might all have personal nuclear reactors (laughs) in our homes. Oh, God, I hope not. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. I can definitely see that being, yeah, we're adaptive optics in some way. I mean, the computing power won't be the issue. Right. Especially if we ever have quantum computing. I almost wonder if, you know, with quantum computing, what you won't see in the future is instead of everyone working kind of by themselves, all the data collected by amateurs around the world, all gets fed into a central, you know, deposit repository where it's then all combined. Hmm. And so you're kind of almost have, you're getting images from everywhere, from slightly different angles, through different atmospheres and different observing conditions. And from there, by combining, you know, observations taken by thousands of different people that, you know, multiple hundreds frames per second, you end up with this super high resolution image. Hmm. And I can definitely see that happening as yeah, well.
2: That's that's interesting as well. Yeah. Wow. And, and the whole uh, tracking system for telescopes. I mean, GPS was a major uh, advantage now because you could pop your telescope right. down anywhere in the world. And a little line itself to where it is on the globe, and basically a lot of these mounts do everything for you now.
1: Yeah, and with you know things like astrometry.net, which you know figured out how to uh, you know a nice quick algorithm where you just take give a star field, you only have to tell it what the star right. field is, what your plate scale is, what the orientation is. And within seconds, it figures out where you're pointed on the sky.
2: Yeah, the whole plate-solving thing is, yeah. is fascinating to me. I mean, that's and there's you could build a plate-solving system for a couple hundred bucks for, for a telescope. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's pretty, I mean, to have a go-to mount now that just, you know, take a picture wherever. It goes, oh, that's where I'm pointed, and I'll point over here. I figured out my solution. I can figure out my tracking. Mm-hmm. I don't care how I'm mounted or what my orientation mm-hmm. is. I'll figure out the tracking yeah yeah i can definitely see that being i mean we're already seeing that i yeah. mean i think that's what the uh the more uh i forgot what the name of the uh the Vespera.
2: oh yeah the, yeah, yeah the Vespera.
1: yeah yeah that's kind of what they're doing
2: yep, yep. that's all, all the robotic telescopes are doing that that's the smaller ones and stuff yeah it's crazy i'm looking at those and just what they do. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of them, but I'll probably end up buying one of them all these
1: days. Oh, eventually, eventually, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I mean, little I have a bigger some,
2: aperture and I, I'll be good.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I just look at, you know, the, the setup I have sometimes and I go, why do I have to figure this out every single night? Mm-hmm. It should be able to figure it out for itself now. The, the technology is definitely there. The algorithms are definitely there. The, the infrastructure is there. Mm-hmm. It's just getting it all to work.
2: Right. Every time. Yeah, That's yeah. that's the key. Okay. What, what else do you see in the future?
1: Oh, 75 years from now. Hmm. So, first of all, that's 2097, <laughs> which is, yeah. Thanks, Legion. Yeah. Almost the 22nd century. Almost the 22nd century there. Hmm. I mean, just looking over the next 75 years, Halley's Comet will have uh, come and gone again. Oh my. In fact, this year it's at aphelion. Is it really? I think it's December of this year. It's at its furthest point, and they're
2: still they still see it, don't they? Um, it's been a while, actually. Has it? Okay,
1: it has been a while. I don't know if there's any plans, say James Webb, to uh, you know look for it. Yeah. I know James Webb definitely tried to observe, and I think they were successful at observing Hale Bopp. Right, which will be kind of of course, Hale Bopp's a much larger nucleus. Be interesting to see if there's still any dust surrounding it. Cool. But it's amazing when you think of something like James Webb, you know, here's a, a very large telescope. 75 years from now, will a James Webb-sized telescope be something that we can just get time on as amateurs? Yeah. Because the professionals will all have 40, 50, 100, 200-meter telescopes. So people might look at a 6, 8-meter telescope and go, oh, that's small. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in my career... You know, I started in professional astronomy in the early 90s. I remember back then a four-meter telescope was large. Mm -hmm. Now a four-meter telescope is considered small. It's not considered large anymore. I mean, it may not be considered small, but it's definitely not considered large. It's not an eight-meter. It's not a 10-meter. It's not combined like the VLT, which is combined, Mm -hmm. you know, like 16 meters combined or whatever. Four-meter is not considered large anymore. So could we see a time where... You know, a four meter telescope is on the earth is a small telescope that amateurs can use, just like an eight meter telescope in space might be considered small because there's a, you know, the next Arecibo is in some crater on the moon. That's, you know, yeah. 20 kilometers <laughs> across or something like that.
2: Wow. Yeah, it's 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 it just makes my head hurt. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then the things you can do with those telescopes. Yeah, I mean, you look at James Webb now, and a lot of, I mean, the mo- one of the most exciting things about James Webb is that it's going to get, it's getting spectroscopy of individual exoplanets. Yep, it's figuring out what's in their atmospheres. I mean, if all of a sudden we've got say a few, two, three, four meter space telescopes that are separated by, you know, lunar. Orbit diameter, you know, which is definitely possible in seventy-five years. Mm-hmm. Well, so we as amateurs be taking pictures, resolved pictures of exoplanets. Oh, let's see what's going on in Alpha Centauri E. Yeah. Oh, it, look, they had a hurricane.
0: <laughs> look, they had a hurricane. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's I, I, like I mentioned earlier the observ the uh, historic observatory series I'm doing. I asked all of them about their major projects and every single mm-hmm. one of them exoplanets.
1: Exoplanets.
2: Exoplanets. Yeah. That's that's the hot button right now
1: for observatories. I mean, in seventy five years, will we have a spacecraft at an exoplanet? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is in the realm of possibility that you could, you know, get something just using solar sail technology yeah. up to like a tenth the speed of light. Right. So, could we have something already flying through the Alpha Centauri system in 2097? I definitely think something will be on the way there by 2097. Oh, maybe yeah. something will already have gone by. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. It'd be fascinating. Yeah. Hmm.
2: So, let's look at the Alpo now. Mm-hmm. The executive director, what what is your, give me the state of the Alpo today.
1: The Alpo is doing well. Um, we've got a number of active sections. We've got a large number of contributors. Uh, we've got this. We got a journal that, thanks to the hard work of uh, Ken Poshedley and Sean Dillis, comes mm-hmm. out every quarter. I mean, the Alpo has been going strong for seventy-five years. Um, though our membership is not as high as it was, but that's true of almost most amateur and even astronomical groups. Um, you know, the the peak was kind of that space race time. Yeah. 50s and 60s and 70s. And things have dropped off. Mm -hmm. Um, but amateur astronomy itself, there's probably more amateur astronomers alive today than there's ever been in history. For one thing, there's more people Mm -hmm. alive, but also there's more people with access to the equipment that allow and the knowledge that allows you to enjoy astronomy as a pursuit and even contribute to astronomy you know, as a scientist. And so I definitely see the ALPO going strong for another 75 years. Um, again, mostly because the primary goal is because people who join the ALPO, and this is true of any amateur astronomy group, you join it because you have fun. Mm-hmm. You join it because you're interested in the subject. In our case, it's the solar system, how the solar system works, what's out there, but it's also, you know, people kind of have a visceral connection with these objects. Mm-hmm. And even though, yes, there probably will come a time, like you said, where no one really looks through the eyepiece anymore. Um, they'll probably just, you'll have it on your computer screen. But there is just something that feels really nice about just seeing a picture or having those photons hit your eye. Yep. And just going, you know. Mars has been there for four and a half billion years. The earth has been there for four and a half billion years. They will, they were there long before we were here. They'll be long. They'll be here long after we're gone. But at this moment in time, it's like your connection with nature of which the solar system is an extension of nature. Yeah. uh, You
2: know, I've been a planetary guy my entire life because i Grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and there was a streetlight right across the street, and all I could yep. see was <laughs> bright objects—the moon and and a couple, you know, bright light, bright bright planets—and I fell in love that way with it. And I still get when I pull the telescope out and I look at Jupiter or Saturn, I still get that that rush. Right when I when I when I see those things visually, I still do, and I don't ever want to lose that. Even I'll look at the moon, and like when I did the training program, when I was in the training program in the seventies in the OPPO, you know, one of the craters I studied was Eratosthenes, and I did mm-hmm. probably 200 drawings of this thing. It's the first thing I look at when I look at the moon at night if it's if it's visible. It's the first oh, yeah. thing. I, is it still there? Does it still look the same? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just so that the the, the 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 excitement I had then I still have today, and that I think is the thing with observing the planets. You know, and the moon they're different every night. Oh yeah, you know and comets. I mean this this crazy comets that's in the sky right now it doesn't yep. look the same on two consecutive nights
1: yep comet ztf there yep yep yeah every time i see a comet i mean especially yep. a comet i'm seeing for the first time it's kind of the sport of mm-hmm. hunting it down and mm-hmm. when you see it it's like ah i gotcha yep, yep. Now, <laughs> I you like.
2: <laughs> now i know what you look like
1: now i know what you look like yeah exactly and it's the same way when i used to discover comets and asteroids mm-hmm. when that was part of my job it was just or even just getting light curves or something just you know that kind of Eureka moment
0: mm-hmm.
1: of, ah, I just saw something for the first time personally, or sometimes I just figured something out about this object for the first time ever, mm-hmm. that no one else knew, you know, how fast it rotated. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, in a way through, you know, over many, many large distances, but from your backyard, you're an explorer. You're yeah. a modern day explorer. Of course, it's much safer to explore from your backyard, but you never know what you're going to see. And most of the time it's kind of mundane, but every Mm -hmm. once in a while you see something that you weren't expecting or see something that's brand new. And the only way we're going to realize that there's stuff, new stuff going on is just by looking up. That's true.
2: Yeah. And when I got into the Alpo years ago, I was looking for things to look for through the telescope. You know, I'd seen all the planets and stuff like that, but I hadn't studied them. Mm -hmm. and this organization gave me the education through the training program and things like that, and just talking to other amateurs with the same interest, it gave me projects to do with my telescope. Right, And now I had a purpose when I was going out. to Not just to look, but now I had a purpose when I was observing, and that made it fun, like you mentioned. It should be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All
1: right, Carl, you got anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so. Um, it's almost three quarters of an hour. Don't want to go too long. No, it's, we
2: can go for two hours if you want. <laughs> I'm retired now. <laughs>
1: Congratulations, Tim. Thank you. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah.
2: Every, everything I thought it would be. <laughs>
1: yep. Great.
2: All right, man. Well, it's
1: good chatting with you about this. Yeah. And then in 2097, we'll come back and do another podcast and see how our predictions held up. I'll put it on my calendar. Yep. <laughs>
2: all right that'll do it for this episode of the observer's notebook podcast i again want to thank the executive director of the alpo carl Hergenrother, for coming on today and uh let us look back in time, and also at his crystal ball into what he sees in the future. I hope you all enjoyed this uh, conversation today. We upload new episodes of the Observer's Notebook on the first and fifteenth of every month. If you enjoy it, you can subscribe on YouTube. If you do, please rate and review it. We also are available on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify. And these podcasts are also available on our YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon, where you can give up to $35, Steve Sedentop, and Michael Moyer for their generous support. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the Alpo, is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. Until next time. I hope that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.